0: My sisters-in-law, Sharon and Paula, who have come from Australia and New Zealand to Singapore, join me in dressing Victoria, their much-loved niece, for her public display at the funeral. This will take place several miles away from the funeral home, at the chapel and crematorium near Mandai Zoo, where I would often take Victoria when she was little. We have chosen a bright melon-orange asymmetrical skirt from cotton on, Victoria wore the skirt when the family got together on Christmas Day at Paula and her husband Jim's holiday cottage in central Otago. Jim took a photo of us with Victoria and sent a spot, her vivid skirt a flag of youth and hope. That day, our sixteen-year-old daughter wore a pair of buff-colored ankle boots. She loved her boots, how they gave her outfits an edge with her blonde hair draping her shoulders and dimpled cheeks peachy with health. She stares from that photo, and what I see now is a mocking way. I use the word mocking because I suspect that the demons that a year later drove her to despair and, ultimately, death, were probably there already. We had no idea she was suffering, but she must have been in terrible mental anguish. For what else would drive your child to self-destruction? This photo of our Christmas gathering shows a moment of happiness that is now its own sadness. We have placed the photo amongst others on a small table at the end of the coffin. Here in Singapore, visitors like to look at them and comment, completely happy to talk about your dead loved one as she lies in the open coffin right there funerals are viewed as an important part of social life this acceptance and the lack of avoidance are something many in the West find discomforting I placed the buff boots on Vic's lifeless feet she had painted her toenails in aqua blue the week before a colour I thought strange at the time I just assumed it was a teen trend but now I see it as a morbid blue befitting the icy tinge of bloodless skin her lips are white too, with the life drained out of them. Her skin is the palest I've ever seen. It's strange to see Vic's face so unmasked. She was a teenager who never went anywhere without makeup. Victoria's aunts, Sharon and Paula, who share the same fine skin and blue-grey eyes, lovingly apply eyeshadow on closed lids, pink blusher to the cheeks, a rose tint to those white lips. My husband Malcolm taps my shoulder. It's time, he says, then leans forward and kisses our child's forehead one last time. I lift her fingers, try to retain a memory of their gentle feel, the beauty of their length, how they stroked the fur of our two cats, how they brushed my cheek. We decide what to put in the coffin with Victoria, I feel a visceral need to do this, but it is also part of the Chinese approach to the ritual of death, where objects are put in the coffin in the belief that the deceased might have need of them in the afterworld. I put in beloved soft toys from childhood, her favourite pyjamas and photos of family, to be with her forever. She was never without jewellery, and I place a large turquoise ring on her finger and jangling bracelets on her arms. I'll miss the jangling. The Chinese also like to give the loved one food to take, signifying the continuing relationship and interdependence amongst family, even in death. A colleague and neighbour, Pat Wee, has gone to Victoria's favourite bakery shop to obtain special food for our daughter. Even though the shop was closed today, Good Friday... The owner has baked six egg tarts, Victoria's treat of choice, from amid shelves of banana bread and curry puffs. We cast rose petals on her body. They are pink tears, dotting her body with love. Then the coffin lid is closed with a thud that is soft, yet brooks no raising. This is when I want to run to it and scream and lose myself as I cling to what remains of my child. But I hang on to what might be dignity to help the others who are grieving. Someone places a bouquet of white and pink flowers on the lid of the coffin. The colours indicate that the deceased is female and a child. Two strangers, employees of the funeral home, dressed in white shirts, black vests and black ties, carry the white coffin to a white hearse with large glass sides. These glass windows enable passers-by in the street to observe the coffin on its journey. This is a common sight in Southeast Asia, though it would be unheard of in New Zealand. On the bonnet, a huge bouquet of flowers has been fastened. Next to the driver in the passenger seat, we are surprised, but somehow pleased to see that a large photo of Victoria, framed with three rows of tiny yellow roses, has been placed there. It is a photo of her looking radiant and wearing her old school uniform before it was changed by the new principal, whom she disliked. It consists of a soft white shirt with fine green stripes and a green skirt. She looks much more relaxed in it than in the new school uniform she wore for just four months, which was a formal, constricted blue dress with a white collar and a dark tie that she said made her look like a flight attendant. Vic's face beams from the passenger seat, seemingly excited and amused to be sitting high up and travelling the streets of Singapore to the highways and then a tree-lined avenue to Mandai, where above the rumble of the furnaces you might catch the roar of a lion. Malcolm and I stand at the back of the hearse. We hold hands and gaze with sadness and disbelief as the van's doors close. I should be with her. She can't leave us. But the three days of the wake beforehand have steadied us for this farewell. Pink, white and yellow flowers line the hearse's window edges, a strangely joyous effect. I hear a pattering sound. Malcolm is holding a blue umbrella. It's raining. The patters tap out the urgency of departure. The hearse's engine is running. The sky is full of grey clouds and drifting dampness. Horns toot. Cars on the busy thoroughfare are being held up. A cortege forms behind us of people chattering in Chinese, Malay and Singlish... The tradition used to be that family members would walk all the way to the graveyard, but in modern Singapore, mourners line up as a final mark of farewell before getting into cars to go to the crematorium where most funerals are held. We only have Sharon and Paula as family and my friend from school days, Fiona. They join colleagues from our Singapore workplace, many clutching blue umbrellas with the logo of the funeral company on them. They fall silent. We walk forward a few steps together as the hearse pulls away. Then it is lost amid rain and traffic. My last glimpse is of the bouquet of white and yellow flowers on the bonnet, as if it were a wedding car, taking a young woman to the chapel to get married. Two days later... Malcolm and I enter a small side room of the lift lobby of the Singapore Casket Company. It's on a different floor to the one we had appropriated for the three-day wake. Unlike that room, this one has windows. Sun streams in. A burly man of Tamil descent, wearing overalls, stands next to a plastic bag on a table. He looks startled. The funeral parlor does not get many Westerners taking up one of its funeral and cremation packages of the style that is traditional with Singapore's Chinese community. However, he squares his shoulders and beckons us with dignity. He nods to a box next to the plastic bag. The box is in the audacious orange of Hermes wrapping, as if it contained some overpriced frippery. It holds the marble urn we ordered yesterday for $162. Our work colleague, Francis Ong, a photographer like Malcolm, helped us select it. Go for middle range. Too expensive is a waste of money, he had advised. His migrant descendant frugality, an offering of love. We, innocents at this business, were grateful. The cremation package we purchased included the category... Ash collection. The man in overalls is a worker from the cremation centre where the funeral was held. We realise this now, observing his practice proficiency. He removes the urn from the box and places it next to the plastic bag. I notice that the bag sits with a certain formality on a raised plate with absurdly fiddly silver legs. The formality and the fiddliness remind me of Grandma Sheila's chintz sofa in her living room in Omaru. We are handed metal tongs. Why would you need tongs for ashes? A rustle as the bag is opened and then a rattle. I prepare for a choking swirl or perhaps a, a floating essence that rises to dance in the sunlight. Instead, there are chunks of bones. We should have ticked Grinding in the cremation package list. I told you, we are new to this business. For Malcolm, it is yet another cruelty. He falls into a chair, he buries his head and sobs. No, no, no. The cremation worker glances awkwardly from sobbing man to smiling woman. Yes, I am smiling. Because these remains so clearly her. I reach into the bag to examine this gift. The man opens it wider for me to access. He smiles tentatively, reverently. I pull out the bones of a complete index finger. The day before dressing her for her last journey, I had placed a huge glittering ring on it, The cheap keepsake my 17-year-old so adored has protected her finger from the fierceness of the fire. From my purse, I pull out a yellow gold ring. I bought it for her when she was a toddler for good luck. Something told me to bring it today. I gently slip it over those three small curved fine bones that even now form a point. My husband is white-faced as he sees me delve into the bones with my own fingers, caressing the curves and twists. A knot of spinal column. A tiny bit of a pelvis that will never bear children. Toes whose nails had been painted corpse blue. Today, all pieces of her are purest white tinged with the pink of the tropical sunsets that she loved. Yet after the blast heat, they could be the fossil of an ancient creature, not the bones of someone alive just six days ago. Our keeper of the plastic bag wields his own tongs, sorting the bones and placing them inside the urn. He places some aside that he puts on top at the end. I gasp. They are from her skull. There is her brow bone. All mothers know the contours of their child's forehead. They place their hands on it to soothe the fever, banish a bad dream. Even when she was older, a teenager, I would slip into her room when she was asleep, kiss that brow, and whisper, Mummy loves you. I touch this curve of a mother's heart, my heart. Malcolm stands, leans on me. The cremation worker puts the urn in the orange box, fastens atop it a matching cardboard lid, lifts the heavy load and hands it to us. Your daughter, he says.